Well, please stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to begin tonight in the Gospel of John, John 14, verses 15 to 31. Then our sermon text will be Psalm 54. Before we read, let's pray one more time. Our Father in heaven, help us now to listen carefully to your word, to take it to heart. Lord, let your word be like that rain that comes down from heaven, waters the earth, and makes it bring forth, sprout, and flourish. Don't let it return void. Let it accomplish that which you have sent it out to do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. John 14, verses 15 to 31. Jesus speaking. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved By my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine. But the fathers who sent me, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Amen. Let's turn now to Psalm 54. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a masculine of David, when the Ziphites went and told Saul, 
Is not David hiding among us? O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. Amen. You may be seated. Okay, last week, we were looking at Psalm 53, and I talked quite a bit about the phrase practical atheism. Um, that is, when somebody lives, regardless of what they say they believe, they're living as though God is not there, as though, or else as, at least as though God does not care. Um, even if somebody claims to believe in God, practical atheism describes what happens when they say by their sinful and foolish choices, there is no God. So Psalm 54 really kind of continues that theme. Okay? Um, once again, it's confronting us with a picture of what this kind of practical atheism looks like, what it looked like at one particular historical moment in David's life. But then it goes on to show us the opposite of practical atheism, what we might call practical godliness. Practical godliness, what it looks like for a person in the face of a hostile world to think, speak, and act as though God really is there, as though God really does care, and have that lived out. So let's uh, look at this psalm in these three parts tonight. I'll give you now. The first one we're going to call the threat of a godless enemy, verses 1 through 3. The second one we're going to call the trust of a godly sufferer, and then uh, verses 4 and 5, and then uh, verses 6 and 7, the thanksgiving of a Godward heart. So the threat of a godless enemy, the trust of a godly sufferer, and the thanksgiving of a Godward heart. It's probably helpful as we get started just to kind of orient ourselves, first of all, to the historical background mentioned in the heading of this psalm. Uh, if you want, you can flip back with me to 1 Samuel chapter 23. <clears throat> uh, King Saul has uh, gotten into his head that David, who's actually quite loyal to him, uh, somehow wants to overthrow him. Uh, Saul is very jealous of David, and so he has unjustly and without any good reason uh, been attempting to hunt David down and kill him. And David has been on the run. He's been living in hiding. Uh, even in hiding, uh, David has still been uh, attempting to 
serve Israel, to participate in defending Israel against the Philistines, especially. And so at the beginning of chapter 23, uh, he and his little band of followers uh, managed to rescue the city of Kalah from a Philistine attack there. And um, you, you would think, under those circumstances, the city would be really thankful and supportive of David and that they would um, make some kind of move to protect him from Saul. But instead, uh, the Lord supernaturally reveals to David, well, actually, when, when Saul comes knocking, the men of Kela are actually going to hand you over to Saul. And so David has to leave that city, has to flee again. And he lives for a while with his men, verse 14 says, in the strongholds, in the wilderness, <clears throat> in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, it says, but God did not give him into his hand. Uh, So far, so good, except that in verse 19, it says, Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us? And uh, they tell, tell the location, and they say, Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. That's what the heading of Psalm 54 is referring to. It seems like David can't catch a break because everywhere he goes, people are betraying him, trying to hand him over to the king who wants to take his life. Nowhere is safe. Everywhere there is danger and betrayal. It's a very bitter irony in the way Saul responds to the Ziphites in this passage. Saul says, may you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. That's what Saul says to the Ziphites. And it just rings so false in our ears, right? Compassion on Saul, blessed by the Lord. How can he be saying this? Everything's just been turned upside down, where Saul is presenting himself as the victim here. He's offering blessing in the name of the Lord. The rhetoric has just gotten so convoluted and out of touch with reality. And David is in this very precarious position as a result where his life is really hanging by a thread. There are a lot of close calls in David's life, right? Uh, he's no stranger to, to, to being uh, you know, in danger of his life. But this may be one of the closest calls, right? We have this very uh, dramatic scene where David's on one side of the mountain and Saul is on the other and David's trying to march around to get away from Saul and Saul's trying to march around the other side to catch up with David and Saul and his men are closing in. They are about to get him. Uh, It looks like everything's going to end disaster when at the very last minute up comes a messenger and he tells Saul, look, the Philistines have made a raid on this other part of the land and so uh, Saul reluctantly has to give up chasing David to go fight against uh, the Philistines instead. That is the context, that is the history, the experience out of which this prayer arises, this this cry for help in Psalm 54. Oh God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. Notice David's not only looking to be rescued, He doesn't want to die. He doesn't want to be captured by Saul. But he's also looking to be vindicated because he knows he's he's being falsely accused that Saul is hunting him down for something he hasn't even done. 
And so he's looking to the Lord both for safety and for God to show David's innocence. I want to slow down here on that first line and ask, what exactly does it mean when he says, save me by your name? That's kind of a curious phrase, isn't it? Save me by your name. How can a name save somebody? A name's just a word, right? Well, no, not right. Uh, Because when the Bible talks about God's name, it's not just talking about the words that we use um, to name him. God's name is talking about God himself in all of the many ways that he's revealed himself. Everything that God's words and God's actions tell us about his character, tell us about who he is, about what he's like, all of that wrapped together is together is wrapped up in what the Bible refers to as God's name. It's a very rich sense of God's name as, as in the third commandment. It says, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. It's everything about him, um, all that he's revealed to us about who he is and what he's like and what he's done. And so when David prays, oh, God, save me by your name, he's saying, Lord, I'm, I'm thinking about all of those things. I'm thinking about everything you've told me about yourself. I'm thinking about everything you've done in the past to save your people, everything that you've promised, all of your power and your holiness and your justice. Lord, I'm asking you now on the basis of all those things, be yourself for me. Um, I think most of you get the idea that the advice, uh, be true to yourself, is, is pretty terrible uh, life counsel, life advice, right? Um, it's kind of the, the Disney version of how to live your life, um, but it's, it's uh, not actually a viable way to live. Be true to yourself, though, I'd suggest is a terrific way for you to pray. A terrific way for you to appeal to the Lord to be himself. To be true to his character. To be true to his promises. Simply to be who he is. Lord, be who you are and be that towards me now at this moment of need in my life. That's so often how the Psalms are teaching us how to pray teaching us what God's character is like, and then teaching us to appeal to that. Say, Lord, I know this is who you are. Be that towards me now. In verse 3, David gives the reason that he's crying out, what the present problem is. He says, For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. It's a pretty good description of the people of Ziph and also the people of Calah before them. Doeg the Edomite, um, the chapter before that. We heard about Doeg a few psalms ago. Um, And, of course, all of those people are beholden to the most ruthless enemy of all, which is King Saul, the kind of ringleader of this ring of people threatening David's life. And here's what all of those people have in common, every last one of them. They do not set God... Before themselves. The end of verse 3. They do not set God before themselves. Many of you here have a high regard for uh, the late, great R.C. Sproul and 
will be familiar with his love of the Latin phrase corum Deo, uh, which means before the face of God. Before the face of God. Um, Phrase is a reminder that all of life, um, every moment and every area of life, is lived out every day in God's presence, under God's watchful eye, before his face. Quorum Deo. This is what Hebrews 4.13 is teaching when it says that no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So the big question comes to how you're going to live your life is are you wisely and intentionally keeping yourself conscious of that great fact when you think about your own life? Um, It's simply an inescapable fact that our lives are quorum Deo, before the face of God. There's no escaping that. Whether we notice it or not, whether we admit it or acknowledge it or not, it simply is the facts. Those are the facts. We are quorum Deo. The question is, have we turned our own attention Godward? Have we looked in his direction? Have we looked into those eyes that are looking at us and searching us and scrutinizing us? And have we set him squarely before our attention? Is God before my face? Now, this is what David's enemies have not done. See, by, by colluding with Saul, in, in spite of David's innocence, they're showing, well, they've set Saul before their face. They're, they're mostly interested in what Saul thinks, Saul's opinion, the way that Saul can reward or retaliate against them, and they're more concerned about that than what the Lord thinks and how the Lord may respond to their actions. In other words, to use that phrase from before, they are living out a practical atheism. They're like the fool from last week who says in his heart, there is no God. They have not set God before themselves. Okay, so how is David going to respond then? Uh, Of course, there are many ways he could respond. One way he could respond is to meet these people on their own level, to kind of fight fire with fire, to buy in to the same um, might-makes-right kind of attitude that Saul has been living by at this point in his kingship. Okay, Saul, if that's what you want to play, and two can play at this game, right? Um, But instead, David takes a very different path. Verses 1 through 3, he's described the threat of a godless enemy. But in verses 4 and 5, we get to see, in contrast, the trust of a godly sufferer. And I've intentionally, if you have one of the printed outlines, I've intentionally put those kind of awkward hyphens in the middle of the words godless and godly and godword to bring out an important point that the defining factor shaping our lives and our destinies is our relationship to God. Are our lives kind of set up in a godless way, that practical atheism, they do not set God before themselves? Or are we living our lives consciously embracing that quorum Deo dynamic, deliberately setting God before ourselves in the way that we think and speak and make choices? And so in response to the godlessness of the attacks against him, David responds with the opposite attitude, 
He, for one, is going to set God before himself. He is going to fill his mind. He's going to fill his imagination, his outlook, his words, his prayers with the truth about who God is, what God is like, what God has promised. Who is God? God is my helper, David says. The Lord is the upholder of my life. David is recognizing that his safety, his well-being, his his whole future, all these things do not depend on his ability to match force with force or treachery with treachery or his ability to play the game, this military and political game that Saul's been playing against him. Instead, David is operating by an entirely different set of rules, a different way of approaching life. He is seeking to be God-centered in his thinking, to set as primary in his outlook on life the character and the promises of God. I'm sure you know the famous quip from poor Richard's almanac that God supposedly helps those who help themselves. right? And I think most of you know that's a completely unbiblical statement. Unbiblical and false. Because that's not how things work. Here what you see is a helpless David. Vulnerable, betrayed, exposed to defeat and death. He's completely unable to help himself. And that, that is when David turns in faith towards God. And he sets God before himself and he says, look, God is my helper. God helps the helpless. God helps those who cannot help themselves and who acknowledge their need and turn to him to fill it. Earlier we read from John 14 where Jesus promises that when he ascends to heaven after the resurrection, he's going to ask the Father and he says, and he will give you another helper. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, right? To be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. See, God has seen us sinners in our helplessness and our need, unable to help ourselves in our guilt and our sin and our shame, like we talked about this morning. And so what has he done? He has sent us help. Help from heaven. Think of Ephesians 2. You were um, just not needing a little leg up in life. You were dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, helpless, unable to help ourselves, that is when he helped us. That is when he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Behold, God is your helper, people of God. The Lord is the upholder of your life. And it's because of that very basic, rock-bottom confidence in God's care for him and God's goodwill toward him, that is why David is able, then, practically, when he goes out and has to actually live, He's able practically to make the choice not to play by the rules 
of Saul's kind of ruthless, kind of Machiavellian power game of intrigue and betrayal. Instead, he's able to trust God as his judge, to trust God as his avenger, to trust that God is the one who will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. And if you go back to the history of 1 Samuel that I was talking about earlier, that's exactly what you see happen in the very next chapter. Chapter 24 is where you see Saul accidentally put himself right in David's hands in the cave. And David has this golden opportunity to end it right then and there, to take Saul's life with the greatest of ease. And instead he says, no, no, I'm not going to do that. The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. Do you hear how God-centered his thinking is in that crucial moment of his life? And what David chooses to do and the reason he chooses to do it. That is the decision of a godly man who has set God before himself where God is at the center of his vision. It's the opposite of the godless people who won't set God before themselves. It's because God is set because David has set God before himself because God is at the center of a spiritual vision because it's his opinion that matters most to David. It's his power and help that David is ultimately counting on. That is how David practically can make that really excruciating choice to pass up that golden opportunity, to do the right thing under tremendous pressure to take right and wrong into his own hands and try to save himself. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that because he is living that God-centered life of faith. He is trusting practically in God's help, God's justice. Uh, it's worth asking here. You may be wondering, how can, I, how can I get there from here? How can I develop a more God-centered, godly outlook on life? How can I practically set God before me? What does that look like? Well, the answer to that is, is not very complicated, really. It's pretty simple. That's not to say that it's easy, because um, it's not easy. There's a lot both inside your own heart and outside you in the world kind of pulling in the opposite direction, a lot of drag, a lot of gravity keeping us from doing these things. But, but I'll tell you, the answer, um, again, it's not complicated. It's really found simply in a deeper and deeper immersion in what we often will call the means of grace. And when we talk about the means of grace, we're just talking about the tools that God has connected his promises with. What is, how has God promised to work? How has God promised to help us to grow? How has God promised to help keep his people God-centered in our thoughts and our choices? And so, for one thing, you set God before you when you read his word, when you meditate on it, when you hear it preached. Because it's through the scriptures, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit, that the Lord reorients your mind, recalibrates you, okay, to think about yourself and the world and other people in a more God-centered way. This is God's tool. It's the way he has promised to do it. He, he's through his word, he is recentering your imagination, your vocabulary, your moral compass. He's again, he's recalibrating you according to the deep reality of the way things really are. 
with him as your creator and your king, and you as his servant and his child, you as a, as a needy sinner saved by grace, and God as your helper and the upholder of your life. You look daily into the mirror of the word of God. You find there the truth shape your thinking and more and more bear this fruit in your heart of a more God-centered way of life. Thinking about other means of grace, think about what happens when you pray. When you pray, what happens is, is you're practicing saying back to God all those things that he's been saying to you in his word. You're speaking to him, you're crying out to him repeating in faith to him what he's just told you about who he is, about what he's like, about what he's promised. That's what it's like to pray according to the word of God, to pray for things according to his will. It's, it's bringing back to God what he said about himself. And again, like we said earlier, asking God, Lord, be true to yourself. Be who you are towards me right now. That's what David was doing in verse 1. Oh God, save me by your name. Lord, be who you are. Prayer is one of the most important ways for you to become a more God-centered, godly Christian. Prayer is not a way for you to get what you want from God. Prayer is a way for you to become more like him as his ways become more your ways. His desires for you, his will that he's revealed to you, becomes more and more what you want, what you desire. As he more and more takes that central place in your spiritual vision, your life is oriented around him instead of yourself or the little idols that tend to take first place when we're not careful. And listen, one of the surest ways for you to move in a less godly, more godless direction in your life is for you to become more prayerless. A prayerless person is going to become a more and more godless person because, I mean, it just stands to reason, if you're not going to God with your needs and the deepest thoughts of your heart, then where are you going? You're going somewhere else. And that's what's going to end up taking the central place in your spiritual vision and orienting your life away from the Lord. Okay, we've talked about the Word. We've talked about prayer. Um, I don't want to go in um, agonizing detail through the whole, through all of the means of, of, of grace. I, uh, we, we could go on and talk about the sacraments as well. We could talk about how baptism and the Lord's Supper help us to build and to maintain this God-centered outlook on life that we've been talking about. Uh, For the sake of time, I'm not going to elaborate on that right now. Although I would say as we move on, I do think especially the Lord's Supper is very deeply related to the last section of the psalm, verses 6 and 7, what we're calling finally here the thanksgiving of a Godward heart. Um, As David speaks about this free will offering that he's going to offer to God in response to uh, God's answer to his prayer. Okay, so when we think about um, the Old Testament sacrificial system, uh, we often focus mainly on the sacrifices of atonement, right? The ones that were designed to provide forgiveness for people's sins, where the sacrificial animal um, was the substitute standing in the person's 
place so that that animal uh, gave its life so that God's people could be spared, pointing to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross as our substitute, taking the punishment for our sins. Uh, something we sometimes forget, though, is that those, sacri- those atonement sacrifices were not the only sacrifices uh, prescribed in the law of God. There were other sacrifices, too, that represent other aspects of the covenant relationship between God and his people. Uh, very important among those other sacrifices were the peace offerings. Peace offerings. Peace offerings uh, were not offered to provide atonement um, for sin. The peace offerings... Uh, represented what it looks like for forgiven sinners now that they have been forgiven, now to be able to have fellowship, communion with God. That's what the peace offerings were about. Peace offerings involved a meal eaten by the worshipers in the presence of God. And, And they symbolized that restored relationship, that covenant wholeness, that that peace that sinners are able to have with God because of the atonement that he's provided. So it's because the atonement sacrifices have happened. That's why you can now have the peace offerings, why you can have this fellowship in the presence of God. Um, In verse 6, when David says he's going to bring a free will offering to God, that's the kind of sacrifice that he's talking about. A free will offering was one type of peace offering that an Israelite would bring to God, not because he had to, and not as a substitute for him as a sinner. He would bring it to God simply because he wanted to. In this case, it's an expression of gratitude, an expression of thanksgiving. Um, So just as at the beginning David appeals for help to the name of God, God, save me by your name. Here he says, I will give thanks to your name. It's the name of God again, you see? Um, again, everything that God is, everything that God has done, everything God has revealed about himself, Lord, it is all so good. It's so good. And you've delivered me from every trouble, given me victory over my enemies, and so now I'm going to respond in worship. I'm going to respond in this overflow of grateful devotion, thankful praise. I'm going to offer the sacrifice that represents not my need for forgiveness. It represents the, the peace that I now enjoy with my God, who cares for me, who has heard my prayers, who's helped me in my time of need. See, this is, I think, the kind of sacrifice that Paul's talking about in Romans 12 when he says that we're to offer ourselves, right, as living sacrifices to God, not to provide atonement, not to suffer and die for our sins. That's, that's not why we're supposed to be living sacrifices. That's not the point. That's what Christ has done in our place on the cross so that we could be forgiven, so that we could have peace with God. But now that we have that peace with God in Christ, now that we know him as the helper and the upholder, of, as our helper and the upholder of our lives, now we offer ourselves as living sacrifices in gratitude for all that he's done for us. See, through the sacrifice of Jesus, God has done something for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. He's taken these godless, self-centered people destined for hell And he's turned everything completely around. He's not just forgiven us, although he has done that. But more than that, he has reoriented us. He's he's transforming us, recalibrating us to be more godly, God-word, God-centered people. 
by his grace and his power through the Holy Spirit. And so in gratitude, then he's calling us to offer ourselves freely and willingly to him. Because we don't belong to ourselves, do we? We are not our own. We are his. He's delivered us from every trouble. Our eye has looked in triumph on our enemies. He has given himself for us, so now we give ourselves to him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word, and thank you that you've indeed delivered us from every trouble, that you are our helper. You are the upholder of our life. Uh, Lord, protect us, we pray, from that gravity of the world, that drag of our flesh that is always working against this this need for us to be more God-centered, God-wordly oriented. Lord, we want to be godly people better reflecting your character, more like Christ, your son. Teach us, we pray. Help us in our need. Lord, we can't do this for ourselves. We depend completely on your power, on your help. And um, Lord, we ask that you would keep doing that work day by day of retuning, refocusing, placing you before ourselves. And so, Lord, most of all, we pray simply that you would indeed be yourself for us. In Jesus' name, amen.